Just a few minutes, we're going to be in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. 2 Peter, chapter 3. We're going to be focusing in on verses 14 through 16 of 2 Peter, chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 16. And uh, if you want to go ahead and, and find your way there, we, we have it uh, up on our website as well as in the Bible app and that sort of thing. So uh, uh, different uh, ways you can find it um, if you're not uh, here in the building and using your Bible or, or whatnot. But uh, 2 Peter uh, 3 verses 14 through 16. This morning I want to start off by asking you a question. Um, that question is, is it possible to be motivated by a coming judgment? Is it possible to be motivated by a coming judgment? The world in which we live seems to indicate to us that it's not possible uh, to be motivated by coming judgment, but our concern is not, of course, what the world thinks uh, about such things, but what does the Bible proclaim about such things? What, what can we find in Scripture? What does a Scripture tell us concerning coming judgment? And does Scripture tell us that there can be or can't be motivation through that? I enjoy reading about men and women from long ago because you get a chance to see how it is that they persevered through their often overwhelming trials and their difficulties that they were faced with. Um, and we get to uh, capture a glimpse of their faith and their perseverance. And uh, quite often when I, when I read these um, stories of their faith, I then compare that to my puny faith uh, at times. And it serves to me as a motivator uh, to be someone of greater faith than I already have. For example, we could take uh, someone like William Carey. Uh, he was an English cobbler who went to India in 1794 and was able to translate the Bible into six different languages and portions of the Bible into 29 other languages. William Carey never attended high school or college, yet he established the first Christian college in Asia, which continues on to this day. And for two years, he, he uh, failed to be ordained. Why? Well, because his preaching was boring and they wouldn't ordain him. While in England, he had so much opposition uh, that he was faced with, he had to overcome all kinds of opposition before he went on mission to India. His first wife went insane after arriving in India. Both she and his second wife died along with some of his children. His partner mismanaged their mission funds and Carey faced many setbacks, including a fire that destroyed years of his translation work. He survived malaria, dysentery, you know that thing which kills you when you play, play Oregon Trail? That's, he survived that. Anyway, that's right above some of y'all said. People are laughing at home at that joke. But anyway, uh, he survived dysentery, he survived cholera, he survived tigers, he survived even cobras, and labored for 41 years in India without ever once taking a furlough. I think I have problems because somebody said something bad about me in the church. This is William Carey. Or how about Adoniram Judson, who went to Burma in the early 1800s, and Hudson Taylor, whose mission paved the way into inland China in the mid-1800s, have stories of incredible perseverance in the face of overwhelming difficulties and overwhelming disappointments. And you can't read these stories and, and, and just sit back and, and complain about our minor or even our major trials. These stories help you persevere. 
They help you reflect and, and know that everything's worth it when you follow Christ. I want to remind you this morning that Peter was a pastor shepherd. Here he's wanting to encourage his readers to persevere. And once again, Peter will address them as beloved, affirming his love for them. And then he ends this letter with this call to persevere. He's, he's answered the ears of false teachers who were scoffing at the fact that Christ will return one day and judge the earth. They were leading others away with their false message of sensuality and greed. And Peter didn't want his flock to be carried away by these teachings, by the air of these false teachers. And so he gives encouragement that they would remain, remain diligent in their perseverance. And, and uh, he alludes back to what he had said, that we remain diligent in perseverance because the Lord is coming one day to judge the world. One day. The Lord will come. And Peter's saying, you Christian, you persevere in your faith. It doesn't matter what all this stuff that you see going on in the world. You Christian, you persevere in your faith. And this speaks to us today because we can look around at the world that we live in today in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of, of people seeming to lose their ever-loving mind at times. And we can say, Peter calls us, Peter the apostle tells us, perseverance, persevere Christian, you persevere in your faith because one day the Lord is coming to judge the world. So with that said, I would ask that you please stand out of respect for God's word as we look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and we read verses 14 through 16, we'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved bro brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And they do as they do the other scriptures. Let's pray. Father, take this word and teach us to persevere. Take this word and penetrate our hearts and lives this morning. Teach us what perseverance looks like so your saints will persevere in the midst of a wicked world that we would give you all glory and all honor as we do so. Speak for your saints are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here's the sentence sermon for us that I will expound on. God's coming judgment should motivate us to, pers to persevere in holy living. God's coming judgment should motivate us to persevere in holy living. If we are going to persevere, I believe there are four essentials that Peter gives us from these verses. They are the hope of his coming, they are holy living, a heart for the loss, and understanding the scriptures. And so we're, we're gonna, or I'm going to unpack those things for us this morning. So first notice that if we want to persevere, we must do so by sustaining the hope of his coming. 
by sustaining the hope of his coming. Look with me at the beginning of verse 14. Peter says, therefore, beloved, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, Peter repeats that verb we talked about last week. We, we, we talked about Peter repeating that word, uh, that verb waiting for. Remember, we said that it was this eager expectation. And so as you and I, as followers of Christ, eagerly await the coming of the new heaven and the new earth, we are to hope in it. That there, there's this uh, assumption by Peter that, that his readers already are looking forward to the fulfilled promise by the Lord. But Peter wants them to persevere. And we do so by sustaining our hope that one day the Lord is coming again. I trust that you believe that Christ is coming again in power and glory to judge the world. But let me ask you this. Do you ever think about it? Do you ever think about the fact that Christ is coming again to judge the world? Do you ever think that one day Christ will indeed return? Don't you think that that would have some sort of effect on, on how we live? If we really sat and thought about the fact that he is coming again and that you and I will have to give an account to him. Don't you think that that would affect the way we live our lives? You see, I'm convinced that, that many of us believe this in our heads, right? So we believe it in our head. Yes, the Lord is coming again. But it doesn't, for some reason, transfer to how we live. So we believe it. Yes, I believe it. I believe the scripture. I believe the Lord's coming again. But it doesn't, it doesn't change the way I live my life. Well, you say, what do you mean? Well, do you think that churches would fight over minor issues and someone, uh, and sometimes even split in the church if the members were living in view of Christ coming again? Would that really happen? Probably not. Would we spend money on all the stuff that we think we need if we were actually living with this view that Christ is indeed coming again and could come at any moment and judge the world? How about our time? Would we waste time on frivolous and meaningless things if we were living in view that Christ is indeed coming again and could come at any moment? Would we really waste time on a lot of frivolous things that we waste our time on? You see, if we, if we truly believe it, then we're going to persevere in our life. Then we must live by sustaining this hope of his coming in our life. You say, well, he is coming again to judge the world. And that could happen at any moment. Therefore, I alter my life to live in such a way. We're, we're actually showing. It means that we live a life that actually shows that we hope in his coming. We don't just say, hey, yes, I hope that the Lord is coming, but our lives reveal that we do hope he is coming. Next note is this, that we uh, uh, can persevere by holy living, that we can persevere by holy living. Look again at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peter seems to like the word diligent. In chapter 1, verse 5, he uses it as a noun. He says, for this very reason, make every effort 
which is the same word for diligence, uses it uh, a, a time as a verb in chapter 1, verse 10, where he says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. He uses it again to speak of, of his own efforts in chapter 1, verse 15, and I will make every effort, which is the same word effort and diligence, same, same word in the Greek, and it's this idea that we give it our attention. It means we're exerting ourselves towards a goal. Diligence is not something that just happens by accident. No one says, hey, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to accidentally be diligent. It never works that way. Instead, it requires a deliberate focus on our part, right? To be diligent. If we, if we refuse to be diligent, then the forces of this world and our flesh are going to have a heyday with us. When we say, well, I'm, I'm just not going to be diligent in my, my Christian life. I'm just, going to, I'm just going to hope everything works out. Then your flesh in this world will have a heyday and you will be carried off in the wrong direction. Now, the, the whole purpose of us being diligent is so that we would be found by him, Peter says, without spot or blemish and at peace. To sum this up, it means to maintain holy living. One commentator says this, the look of hope must, per, must produce the life of holiness. The look of hope must produce the life of holiness. In Acts chapter 24, Paul testifies before the governor Felix, and he says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. In our text this morning, John Calvin um, takes that word peace to mean a quiet state of conscience founded on hope and patient waiting. He adds, this peace then is the quietness of a peaceable soul which acquiesces into the word of God. If our conscience convicts us because we know we have been disobedient to God, just like Adam in the garden, then we will do all we can to hide from God and to avoid God. We definitely will not be at peace with God because our conscience is convicting us. This same thing is true in our relationship with others, isn't it? When, when you've wronged someone, whether it's through, through gossip or, or something else. Sorry, we went offline. I got to reconnect. Uh, when you've wronged someone, whether it be through, through gossip or, or uh, a different uh, reason, whatever that might be. It could be gossip. It could be that you mistreated someone <laughs> or another means. Then then do you want to see them? No. Why? Well, because you've wronged them. So, so if you're in the grocery store or the big box store or whatever, and you've wronged this person, right? And you see them down the aisle, what do you do? You don't walk up to them, hey buddy, hey, good to see you. No. You, you see if they've seen you and then you split, right? You, you try to get out of the way. You try to make sure that they don't see you because you've wronged them and you don't want to have a conversation with them. You don't want to deal with them. You don't want to talk about it and, and all this stuff, right? You try to avoid them. Why? Because your conscience, your conscience speaks against you. It says, hey, you have a problem. You, you've sinned. You've got to deal with this. And rather than deal with your conscience, you try to avoid it altogether. The same way is, is true with the Lord. The only way for us to recover from our sin is to confess our sin, 
to God and to confess our sin to our brother or sister in Christ and then ask them for forgiveness. That's the only way to deal with your conscience because you've wronged someone else. And then you feel better because you've dealt with it. What Peter says is that we are to be without spot or blemish. He's not implying that you and I have to be perfect because nobody's perfect except for Jesus Christ. What he is doing is he's contrasting the behavior of believers with the behavior of those false teachers because they were stains and blemishes. And he's giving us this, this high standard that you and I can aim for. We should not have unrepentant sin in our heart, not even sin in our thoughts. Neither should we have sin in which we have wronged another believer in Christ without making it right with them. This is why Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He doesn't say some. He doesn't say uh, only the people you like, only the people that you are friends with. Paul says, if as long as it depends on you, you be at peace with all people. And why he says it in Romans 4, 14, 19. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So to pursue peace is, is, is just like being diligent. There's effort involved in it. It means that you and I have to exert efforts to work through relational problems so that our conscience is clear before God and men. Let me ask you, do you do that? Do you actually work through your relational problems? Or do you just ignore them? Talk, well, well, I sure hope they get better. Are you diligent to be found by God without spot or blemish and at peace because you know the Lord is coming again? Can I be real honest with you? You know I'm going to be anyway, right? So it doesn't matter. I don't even know why I ask that. Because I'm going to be honest. <clears throat> Do you know what I often face? It's professing Christians that are harboring all kinds of bitterness in their heart towards others. For one reason or another. Or they have anger in their heart towards, towards someone else for one reason or another. And sometimes they can't even identify why they're angry or why they're bitter. And sometimes, get this, sometimes Christians are bitter at someone else that isn't the reason, that, that didn't do anything to them. Because they hold bitterness towards another person. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, I've received that before. Someone is just bitter at all pastors. I've faced that before. I just, I just don't like pastors. They're all the same. They're all this. They're all that. And so they are bitter towards me. Because some pastor made a mistake, upset them, did something that they didn't like. So then some other pastor has to pay for that pastor's problems. And whether our attitude is towards family members or other Christians, let me be clear this morning, church. It is sinful to be bitter and angry towards another believer. It ought not to be in our heart. Stop and think just for a moment 
how absolutely foolish you would feel when Christ returns and you are so busy being bitter towards someone else that you're not at peace with that person and you're definitely not at peace with the Lord because you would rather hold on tight to the bitterness that's in your heart. Can you imagine that day? Christ returns in what should be a joyous occasion. You're too busy being bitter. You know if you do not have peace, you know if you are bitter, and I'm calling on you right now to repent. I'm calling on you right now. Do it today. Go to God and go to that person and seek forgiveness and deal with the conviction of your conscience right now. Don't wait for tomorrow. Don't say, oh, I'll deal with that next week. You do it now. I don't care if you have to, if you're watching online, if you have to stop this sermon and call someone. Take care of the business now. And if you feel conviction, that's a good sign that you have something to take care of. So if, if we want to persevere, then we sustain the hope of his coming. We have this holy living, so our conscience is clear. Thirdly, by having a heart for the lost. By having a heart for the lost. If we really want to persevere, we have to have a heart for the lost. Look what Peter says. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's a flashback to verse 9, right? <coughs> the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In that verse, Peter's given an explanation as to the one reason why the Lord's coming is seemingly delayed. And of course, that reason is that he's patiently waiting for sinners to come to repentance. The focus of these verses is that we can't get so caught up in our own problems that we are, are uh, that, that we want this and want that, that we're, that we're crying out to God for him to return and bail us out of whatever situation that we're in, that we forget all about the lost. And that can be so easy to do, right? We can get so caught up in our problems that we are faced with that we say, say, God, just bail me out of this situation. That we forget about the lost. We forget all about those that do not know Christ. Right? We, we've done that with this, with this whole pandemic. Oh, man, I just wish this, this thing would end. I'm sick of this pandemic. Nobody can do nothing. We gotta wear a mask, gotta do this, we gotta do that, right? And we get so frustrated. I just wish the Lord would call me home or I wish the Lord would return. What about all those lost people that don't know Christ? Or we look around the world, right? And we say, man, this world is in total rebellion to God. This world deserves to go to hell. The whole reason that God has not returned is because he's patiently waiting for sinners to repent. He's waiting for you and for I to take the gospel of Jesus Christ that we say we hold so dear to every nation, to every tribe, and to every tongue. He's waiting for you and I to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbor, to our friends, 
to our co-workers, to our family members, and proclaim the gospel to them. He is patiently waiting, believer, for you and I to do what we proclaim that we hold to. The trials that we may go through on this earth pale in comparison to the eternal punishment that awaits unrepentant sinners. So stop focusing on ourselves and, and our issues and all the problems that we think we have and focus on the fact that there are lost people in this world that will die and spend eternity in hell and we have a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ to take it to them. Oh, that we would have the attitude of Paul when he wrote in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I endure everything for the sake of the elect that, we, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When the Lord does return, it will mean salvation not only for us, but for all who believed through both our witness and our efforts of those who have given their lives to missionary service and everything else, these people will, it means eternity in heaven with them, for them. The suffering we may face now as we walk through various trials on this earth will be more than worth it. When we see all those in heaven that we've shared the gospel with, that we've touched somehow, that we planted a seed with somehow, all the sacrifice that you could possibly go through on this earth is worth it, Christian. Listen to what the missionary David Livingston, who spent his entire life taking the gospel to Africa, wrote. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office as being a missionary. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in helpful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of our glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought, it emphatically is no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing compared when compared with glory, which shall hereafter be revealed in us. I never made a sacrifice. Oh, Christian, it's not a sacrifice. It is a privilege. So well, what if what if I lose friends? It's a privilege. What if I lose income? It's a privilege. What if I get beat up? It's a privilege. What if, any, what if anything happens to you? It is a privilege. If we are going to persevere, 
We need to make sure that God's focus is our focus. He's delaying his return of Christ because he's patiently waiting for the lost to come to salvation. And they will come to salvation when we are obedient and sharing the gospel. If our focus is on reaching lost sinners with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then the trials that we face on this earth will not seem very big at all. Perseverance will come by sustaining the hope of his coming, by us having a holy life, and by having a heart for the loss. And lastly, I want to share with you by understanding the scriptures. By understanding the scriptures. Peter continues on in his writing when he writes this, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, then comes the funny part. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist. There, there are some things that are hard to understand. That's Funny to me. They twist them as they do other scriptures. Do we know what letter Peter's referring to? No. He doesn't tell us. We know that both Paul and Peter wrote about the needs for holiness in light of the truth of Christ's return. Paul pretty consistently warned about the dangers of false teachers. So one could make the case that Peter's actually referring to all of Paul's letters that were circulated among the churches. Why did Peter bring up Paul's name? Again, we don't know. Could be that, that the false teachers are using Paul's letters uh, to defend their false view of Christian liberty as a license to sin. It could be that they're using uh, Paul's letters against Peter, kind of like when, when kids play that game of using dad against mom. You ever seen that one, right? Or vice versa. Well, mom said this, or dad said this, or I already asked dad, or I already asked mom. Perhaps they were even going to Galatians chapter 2, where Paul had rebuked Peter. Maybe they even tried to use that to, to discredit Peter, and they would say, say uh, well, we're following Paul, Peter. We're not listening to what you have to say. Peter showing that he and Paul were of one mind. There are five quick specifics I want us to learn here. First, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God. Inspiration literally means breathed out. So when we say that God inspired the scripture, we are saying that God breathed it out. Peter acknowledges Paul's writing as being on the same level as the rest of scriptures, including the Old Testament. Now look at what Peter says about Paul's writing. He says it's wisdom that's given to him. This implies inspiration. This is very similar to what he said in chapter 1, verse 21, when he says, But men spoke of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul wrote, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training in righteousness in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul is saying that the message that he preached was not just made up, but it was received by God. And Peter is affirming that. So let me ask you something. If God inspires all scripture, then do we get to pick the ones that we like and focus on them while we ignore the others that we don't like? No. We can't do that because the Bible, if the Bible confronts our sin and we decide that we're just going to disregard that where it confronts our sin, that's to our own peril because all scripture is inspired by God. If we do not like a doctrine, but it's proven in Scripture, we still submit to it and embrace it. We don't have the freedom to sit in judgment on the Bible and say, well, I don't like that, so therefore I don't believe that that's true. It doesn't matter what you believe is true. It's whether the Scripture teaches it or not. 
Instead, we need to allow the Bible to sit in judgment on us and reveal anything sinful in us. We either accept all of God's inspired word or we don't. We follow our own human wisdom. And unfortunately, we have many that are following their own human wisdom in the church today. Not only do we, not only do we understand this about Scripture that it's inspired by God, but we also must understand Scripture is often misused to justify sins. This is most likely what the false teachers are doing, right? Paul, they're using Paul's letters. Perhaps they were taking the doctrine that God justifies the ungodly by faith alone, which we find in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and they were wrongly concluding that it doesn't matter how we live. We can just live however we want. Or maybe they took uh, Paul's teachings that, were not, uh, that we are no longer under the law and they used it to justify immorality. Or maybe they even took what Paul said about grace and argued that, that they could continue on in their sin so that grace would increase in their life. You see how easy it is to take scripture and pervert it and make it mean whatever we want it to mean? It happens all the time. It happens in churches even. We have to be careful that we do not use the Bible to justify our sin, but instead we use it to confront our sin. And as you read the Bible, you ask the Spirit of God, God, teach me, search my heart, bring to light any sin that's, that's in my life that I need to turn from. But... Often, the Bible is used to justify sin. Thirdly, the deeper we get into Scripture, the deeper our love for one another. I want to take you back to Peter's language where he calls Paul our beloved brother. Paul had publicly rebuked Peter in front of the whole church at Antioch. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2 uh, this rebuke. Don't you think it would have been easy to understand if Peter would have distanced himself from Paul? and would turn a cold shoulder to Paul anytime Paul's name came up. I mean, that's what we do, right? If somebody were to rebuke us publicly and then their name came up, we'd bristle. We'd, we'd be so upset with them. That's not what Peter does. Peter shows humility. He speaks well of Paul. He acknowledges that God imparted wisdom to Paul, which we have in his writings. Peter allows God's word uh, uh, through Paul to help him grow in his love for fellow believers rather than become bitter and jealous. It often baffles me how many professing Christians lack in love, which is something that Paul praises as a chief virtue. Hudson Taylor was a missionary who had a man that started out with him who later left the mission and turned against him. Instead of acknowledging that they had a difference in philosophy of ministry, this man instead went on a vendetta against Hudson Taylor. He attacked him and attacked his integrity. You would think that, that a man who had made the sacrifice to move to China re and, and uh, to reach people would apply the principles of, uh, and the teachings of biblical love to his own life. But this man refused to set aside his differences with Taylor. Unfortunately, I've encountered people that seemingly know the Bible well, but they are mean and they're angry and they're unkind towards others and they're filled with bitterness and it affects many aspects of their life. If we are not going deep into the word of God and using it to grow deep in our love for one another, then you're using the scripture wrong. Plain and simple. The deeper you go into God's word, the deeper your love for fellow believers will be. Fourthly, how do we deal with difficult texts? How do we deal with difficult text. Peter readily admits, right? He says, some of Paul's writings are just difficult to understand, which brings comfort to me. I mean, how many of you have been reading the Bible 
and you come across something that's just hard to understand, you're just like, I don't even get that. Yeah. Right? You scratch your head, you're like, I have no clue. And that's not only Paul's writings. Hello, Peter, you wrote some things that are hard to understand too. However, the overall message of the Bible when it comes to salvation is abundantly clear. But other areas are hard to grasp. For example, when we look at the second coming of Christ, we know that Jesus will come back bodily in power and glory and he's going to judge his enemies, but when? And, and uh, are we pre-mill? Are we post-mill? Are we all-mill? What are we? They're, all the details aren't clear. If it were clear, all the scholars would agree, but they don't. Peter labels these false teachers um, uh, as unstable and ignorant, is what he says. He says they, they take the words of Paul that are, that are hard to understand, and they twist it. They distort it. So they would take the scripture and they'd bend it just enough to justify their sin. Invariably, what happens is these false teachers remove the offense of the cross so they can boast in their own good works, or they come across a Bible text that they don't like and they twist it to fit their narrative. Perfect example of this is how people twist that Romans chapter 9 where it talks about God choosing Jacob and, and not Esau, and God loving Jacob but hating Esau. And people will come up with all kinds of attempts to twist the scripture to mean something that the scripture doesn't mean because they can't justify in their mind how God could do such a thing. Sometimes because people can't justify the Bible with their own life, they reject it altogether. And so how do we deal with difficult passages? Well, the best way to deal with a difficult passage is to submit with a teachable heart. We must also understand that some things in the Bible just defy human logic. For example, trying to explain the Trinity. It's logically impossible. It's logically impossible to, to uh, explain the two natures of Christ. Logic won't resolve how it is that God is sovereign over all things, but he's also not the author of evil. Our logic won't conclude how God is sovereign, yet we are responsible for our own choices. The Bible affirms both of them, so what do we do? We submit logic to revelation. What I mean is that we put our logic below scripture, holding these things, uh, these, these difficult passages in tension. We understand, hey, I can't understand this fully, but it has to be true because the Bible proclaims it. Now, when Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In the Greek, do your best is one word. It's the same word for diligent. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, be diligent. We must be diligent students of the word of God. We have to keep our hearts open and be teachable. There is nothing worse than people who refuse to be open and at least teachable when it comes to God's word. And yet that's the apparent um, view of our culture today. There are maybe things that we don't understand until we get to glory. But don't twist the Bible to fit your own sinful desires. Lastly, how we use the Bible may be the difference between heaven and hell. Peter tells us that these false teachers twist the scriptures to their own destruction. We're not talking about a little difference of opinion. We're talking about heaven and hell. It's not this minor little doctrinal difference. Instead, these, these false teachers were not subject to Christ's rightful lordship over their life. They have, they have never repented of the sensuality and greed and they were using the Bible to deceive others and to justify their own sinful desires. They're headed for eternal destruction. 
Listen, sound doctrine on major issues matters. If we deny the deity of Christ, as the cults do, then people end up in hell. If we deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, guess what? People end up in hell. And I'm not being harsh or judgmental, but being true to God's word. When we, when we say things like, like, well, we just need to set aside our doctrinal differences and just love one another and focus on loving one another, we need to be careful because that's really not loving at all. It's not loving when someone ends up in hell because of our doctrinal difference. To say that we can't really know the truth for certain or that all religions basically lead to the same place is a false teaching. There's only one way to God. And we end up condemning people to hell when we act like, like other religions believe exactly like what we believe. This kind of teaching leads people to ignorance and unstableness and destruction. That's what it does. So we have to be careful. We can't just be, oh, well, yeah, I just don't care about doctrine. It's no big deal. That leads to destruction. I close with this this morning. Similar to how I opened. Is it possible to be motivated by coming I believe Peter answered that question for us. And we can clearly see the answer. And if we lack motivation, then we're certainly not going to live a holy life. Why would you? God's judgment is coming. So we must be motivated to persevere by maintaining our hope in his coming, by holy living, by having a heart for the lost, by understanding the scriptures. And so I ask you this morning, are you motivated for holy living, believer? Are you really motivated for holy? Do you really live like Christ is truly coming back? Like he could come tomorrow. Like he could come before he even finishes his sermon. That would be really weird if I said that too. But it could happen. That's what we believe. Are you living that? And I also have a second question. Do you know Christ as your Savior? If you don't know him, then you're not going to be motivated for holy living. If you want to put your trust in Christ today, you can do that. You can put your trust in him. You can do that by praying something like this. It's not a magic prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son, that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not magic. It's your trust in Christ that saves you. Prayer is simply you expressing your trust in Christ. If you said that prayer or something similar, you want to know more about it, then I would challenge you either come forward if you're in the building, or if you're online, you can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488, and it'll automatically start to follow up with you, and I'll see that you did that, and I'll follow up with you. You can do that in your pew. You could send a random text message to that and say, hey, pastor, I want to know more about what you're talking about. I'd love to talk with you. So do you know Christ? And secondly, is it evidenced in your life by your holy living? In other words, can people look at you, see the way that you live, and know that you know Christ and you have a hope in his coming because of the way you live, the way you live it out? Father, I thank you so much for this word. Sometimes your, your word is just, 
Lord, it's so convicting. It convicts our hearts. It just You talk about how your word pierces our hearts. And I know this, this passage did that for me this week. Oh, God, it pierced my heart. Lord, how often as Christians do we say that we have the hope of his coming? We don't live it. There's no evidence of that in our life. We look around at a world that's bound for hell. Friends and neighbors, even strangers, bound for hell. We walk by them not sharing the hope of Christ that we supposedly have. Lord, would you convict us this morning? Would your word penetrate our hearts and lives this morning? Would we be a people that truly live with the hope of your coming? Whether we're online or here in person, God, bring conviction to our heart. Oh Lord, that we'd be a, a church that would not just grow numerically because, oh, we're so nice and we're, we want to be nice, but Lord, that we would be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ because we are living our lives in such a way that we understand, God, that you are coming back and we hope in it and it could be at any time. And Lord, that, that we are called by you to be a people who lives that out. And then, Lord, I pray for those that may hear this message that don't know Christ. Oh, that today would be the day of salvation for them. They've come to know Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray that you'd speak even as we sing. And if there's areas of our lives where we need to get right, whether it's repentance to you or even forgiveness from another brother or sister in Christ, that we would take care of that today. Lord, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you be willing to respond this morning.